0: Welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we fight bad information one fact at a time. I'm Alexis Conran, and in this week's episode, we look into claims by the Prime Minister and the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party. We're also going to look into how you can avoid being scammed when dealing with the track and trace systems trying to contact you. I'm joined by Full Fact Editor Tom Phillips. Tom, shall we kick off with the Prime Minister? It's a good place to start. Yeah. Why not? I remember hearing this at PMQs. On it was last week. It's the twentieth of May, and Boris Johnson said this country is now testing more than virtually any other country in Europe.
1: Yeah. And this is, it's worth saying, it was also something that uh, Jeremy Hunt said in Prime Minister's Questions uh, this week as well, said that we're at the top of the league table in Europe for testing. There is a league table that we appear near the top of. We are second behind Russia. But the problem with this league table is that it doesn't have every country on it. It's very, very unclear Uh, what the data is. All the countries gather data in slightly different ways. Uh, Are they talking about the number of people tested? Are they talking about the number of tests done? What exactly is it they're reporting? They report at different timescales, all that sort of thing. So yeah, there is a league table, but it doesn't have lots of countries on it. Um, There's a genuine question around whether or not, for example, Germany might be testing more than us. And there's also the question of whether or not you should be looking at it in terms of tests per head of population. For example, if you adjust for population, then we're behind Lithuania and Denmark. Uh, and we might also be behind Luxembourg and Belgium but that's unclear because the way they publish data is not entirely obvious so as with lots of things that we've been talking about we've talked about the number of excess deaths we've talked about the you know, number of infections international comparisons remain very 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 hard to do in this situation because the data is just so much of it relies on the data from other countries being comparable to ours and most often it just isn't.
0: Tom, what do you make of the fact that Sir David Norgrove, he's the chair of the UK Statistics Authority, wrote a second letter to the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, uh, in which it's fairly obvious that Matt Hancock's reply to the first letter wasn't good enough because Sir David Norgrove says in his second letter, he says, I'm afraid, though, that the figures are still far from complete and comprehensible. What do you make of that?
1: We've said at Full Fact that we completely back the UK Statistics Authority uh, on their stance on this. Uh, You know, we've said that publicly. We think that this data is not yet good enough, that it needs to be consistent and comparable across time. They're still mixing in different criteria for whether or not a test has been done. You know, they count home tests as done as soon as they are posted out. And we know that experts have said that it's uh, possible that quite a few of these home tests may not be returned with a usable sample, for example. Final word before we move off this, Tom, um, is that of
0: capacity. Um, have we reached the capacity, as promised by the Prime Minister, of 200,000 tests by the end of May? That was promised. Uh, and capacity, again, just to remind listeners, is just we have the ability to carry out those tests. It doesn't mean that we are necessarily uh, actively doing so.
1: Yeah, and again, this is a question that we've been asking the government, basically, how do you define capacity? So for example, when they hit their target of 200,000 tests, that was because of the addition of antibody tests. About 40,000 of them got added to the figure. Now, according to the data they were putting out at the same time, at that point, it wasn't clear how many, if any, of those tests had actually been carried out. Capacity is a hard thing to measure. You don't really know what the capacity of something really is until you try it out at capacity. And so it's a very, very fuzzy number to be talking about, capacity. And if you're going to be talking about numbers that are uncertain in that way, you have to be very clear about what it is you actually mean and how you're measuring that. It's
0: a bit like saying I have the capacity to have £200,000 in my bank account, but that doesn't really tell you how much I actually have in my bank account.
1: Yes, I, I have the capacity, I genuinely believe, to write a brilliant novel. I will not have actually done that until I have written said brilliant novel. We can all talk about capacity, but until we put it to the test, you just don't know.
0: Let's move on to the second thing you've been looking into. This came from Deputy Labour Leader Angela Rayner on the 22nd of May. She said that SAGE concludes that June the 1st is too soon to open schools. Teacher unions have been absolutely correct in asking for safety measures to be in place before opening. Was she right? Did SAGE really advise against the opening of schools? And yet we've seen the opening of schools happen on the
1: 1st of June. No, she wasn't. And in credit to her, she did delete that tweet pretty soon after that. That wasn't SAGE. That was independent SAGE, which is not the same thing. And this has been the source of genuinely quite a bit of confusion. Like Angela Rainer is far from the only person we've seen make this mistake. Because you have SAGE, which is the government scientific advisory group. And then you have this other body called Independent Sage, which is a bunch of other scientists who've set up a rival group to provide what they consider to be better scientific advice, but they're not actually an official group or anything like that. We've been talking about the question of trust in information from the perspective of the government. I think you've got to question whether or not it was a good idea to call themselves Independent Sage, give themselves the same name, because it's Mm -hmm. clear that it has caused quite a bit of confusion. Angela Rayner is a frontline politician and got confused by this. I'm not sure how helpful that is, not to talk about whether or not their scientific contributions are helpful, but choose a different name, guys.
0: And with regards to the uh, real SAGE, some of the research about the schools has been published, but their advice, their final sort of reckoning and advice to the government, that has not been published. Um, Tom? Thank you. Now, for our main story, we're going to take a look into health misinformation. And to do that, we are joined by full fact researcher, Dr. Olivia Vickel. Olivia, thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: What struck me about this briefing that you put together is you started writing this briefing even before the coronavirus crisis began. Why did you start it?
2: That's right. Well, the reason we started is actually the reason why health misinformation is so relevant. It's because Even though we're talking a lot about it now during the coronavirus, it's always been with us. Health misinformation was always part of the agenda that full fact is trying to correct. And the fact that we are now living through a pandemic only made it more relevant.
0: Yeah, it couldn't have come at a better time, in fact. So tell us about the briefing. You've managed to break it down into three parts. What are those parts and how did you come to uh, decide on those parts?
2: I wanted to break it into three parts because there are different ways in which information takes hold of the public imagination. The three parts basically are crises, first of all. I would like you to think of crises not as a type of information, of course, but but as a scenario. Obviously, COVID-19 articulated a crisis. It's one of those moments of radical disruption. So on one hand, in a situation of crisis where everything is thrust into uncertainty, we tend to look for more information. We read more. We check our social media more frequently. But at the same time, we're less able to process, to understand what's happening. Uh, then, on the other hand, we have conspiracies, a different scenario altogether. We're talking about Wildly imaginative interpretation of scientific evidence, narratives of secret deals and hidden intentions that kind of spread from groups of very convinced believers, the type of people that you will never convince otherwise with evidence, and spread onto the general public. And uh, yeah, number three is just the usual um, everyday misinformation that comes via false remedies and homemade cures. And um, it's the type of thing that we fact check every day.
0: Now, this isn't a new thing. I mean, one example I see uh, in your briefing, for example, was the uh, 2015 Zika virus outbreak. And again, we're hearing echoes of what we're hearing now about COVID-19. Of course, there there were the same conspiracies back in 2015 that this was a man-made virus. Are you surprised that the COVID-19 outbreak has followed pretty much the same pattern with the same type of misinformation and conspiracy theories coming back out again. But only this time it's not the Zika virus, it's the coronavirus.
2: I don't want to sound cynical, but no, I'm not surprised. And the psychology literature we reviewed in this briefing indicates that conspiratorial ideation, right, that's a technical term, that is a worldview that some people hold. Even now, uh, preparing for this podcast, actually, I was um, reviewing some figures from from YouGov, um, who ran this survey with uh, 2,000 uh, members of the British public back in 2019, and they found that even then, 16% of the population believes that the moon landing was faked. So, in a way, it's not even surprising that even something like this that doesn't have any—I think it doesn't have any political consequences. It doesn't have any uh, big. Impact on identities or any other social distinctions that somehow has lingered in the public imaginary. So, a number of people just hold that worldview. So, I I want us to understand that conspiratorial ideation is not the absence of information. You know, you don't believe in a conspiracy because you didn't go to school or because you don't know what's right, it's just a way of interpreting the world. And it's just regrettable that when the pandemic hit, these pockets of conspiracy spread from convinced believers to the general public.
0: What steps do you think that we should be taking right now to fight this misinformation surrounding health?
2: So if we go back to the three scenarios, um, if you think of how we process information in time of crisis, the first step to fight it is to be clear about what's accurate, be consistent in our messaging and, and keep things simple and keep saying the same message consistently because people struggle to process complexity.
0: So something like wash your hands and stay home, something like that. Exactly.
2: I think that's the simplest part of the story with crisis communication. When it comes to something like anti-vaccination conspiracies, things get a little bit more complicated. Uh, One of the interesting things I I, I read in um, preparing this briefing was a study conducted in in a number of countries in the world on a sample of 5,000 people who found that the three Our best predictors of anti-vaccination attitudes were conspiratorial ideation, as we've just said, uh, reactance, which is some people's tendency to say no the moment they're told to do something. And remember that vaccination is mandatory in a lot of places. And the third factor was um, a disgust for needles and blood. So this is a hypothesis I'm generating, but I think not accompanying pro-vaccination messaging with images of you know, medical environments with needles and, and, and mm-hmm. syringes and that kind of fear inducing, disgust inducing uh, imagery, that could, could be something as well.
0: I was stunned to read this because I didn't know about this, but according to the World Health Organization, vaccine hesitancy, people who are thinking twice before vaccinating their kids or themselves, is one of the world's top 10 health risk. So it's a, it's a proper health risk. Along diseases, we have now put vaccine hesitancy as a public health issue. And a staggering 21% of people around the globe still have doubts about the safety of vaccines.
2: What's very interesting is that, again, this is not necessarily about not having the information. We have had this information for so long now. Vaccine hesitancy is this problem that remarkably surfaces in high and middle income countries that have relatively good education and health services. And somehow we we still see it.
0: Olivia, thank you so much uh, for sharing your time with us. That's uh, Dr. Olivia Vickle, who is a full fact researcher and has produced uh, this briefing, which you can find on the full fact website if you head to uh, fullfact.org. Org Now, for our last section in this episode, we are not going to be doing our usual ask for fact because we thought it would be very, very important to give people advice on how they can verify that they're actually being contacted by government's uh, test and trace service. Now, a few people, myself included, are concerned about fraudulent calls and fraudulent texts, people pretending to be from the test and trace service. Now, I'm really glad to say that full fact checker Rachel Krishna joins us now. Uh, What has the government advice been to help people reassure themselves... They're being contacted by genuine members of NHS Test and Trace.
3: We contacted the government. Their response to us was that you should only ever be called from a certain number. We have that number listed in our article or be texted from NHS. They also said that if you do not feel comfortable talking on the phone, as in if you've been contacted by someone and you feel suspicious about the the call that you should ask for an email or text that will invite you to use the track and trace website we also have the url which they provided in the article which is contact hyphen tracing.phc.gov.uk and they've also listed things like you shouldn't be asked for credit card details social logins personal information it should just be things related to coronavirus symptoms who you've been in contact with etc
0: now Rachel, having uh, spent a little bit of time, well, when I say a little bit of time, having carried out over 500 scams and been talking about security for, well, I don't know, the most part of 10, 15 years now, my interest in this subject was, was piqued when a member of the public actually asked what people should do. And Deputy Medical Officer Jenny Harris said, people will be able to know if the call is real because it will, and I quote here, be very obvious in the conversation that you are having with them that they are (laughs) genuine. Um, Yes. Now, scammers and con men have been making a fortune and a very healthy living by impersonating police officers, banks, HMRC on the phone for years. So this idea that you'll be able to tell by the conversation is just frankly a little bit bizarre. Plus the fact that none of us have actually ever had a test and trace phone call, so we don't actually know what it's meant to sound like. But Rachel, you've been told that what they definitely won't be doing is asking you for any banking information, PIN numbers and things like that. Will they be asking you your name and date of birth and address?
3: Yes, they should be asking you your name and date of birth and details of any symptoms you may have. If you've tested positive, they will also ask you for other people's contact details. So people you've been in close contact with, they will ask for emails, phone numbers to contact these people.
0: Mm -hmm. And I believe that their advice is, if you feel uncomfortable doing that over the phone, there is that website that you can do that on. The website, as you read it out earlier, was contact... Uh, contact hyphen tracing hyphen there you go <laughs> hyphen tracing dot uk correct yes you'd have thought they could have come with a slightly simpler website because again the reason i say this is that criminals have been known to copy websites like that by just ch- changing just one letter And I know that we talk about a padlock being at the side of your browser, but that just tells you that the communication between you and the website is secure. It doesn't tell you that the website is genuine. So that's something for people to remember. Now, Rachel, am I right in saying that what you've been given to understand as part of government advice is that they have told people if they feel uncomfortable with the phone call, they should ask for an email or a text message to be sent to them with the web address included.
3: Yeah, that's correct. They've said that if you're um, having a phone call and you're thinking, hmm, this sounds a bit weird, or they're asking me for things that I don't feel comfortable with, you should ask for a email or text message with a link to the government website. And you should also ask them to provide the account ID. Well,
0: the problem again, uh, with this uh, that I have, people in security, we always tell Uh, Everybody, do not click on links in text messages or emails because, for two reasons, those text messages can be spoofed. The NHS text message can be spoofed. That means that a criminal can send you a text message that will sort itself in the same conversation you've been having with the NHS or the government one. We've already seen the government ones that are all over social media um, spoof text messages that are sorting themselves under the government conversation you've already been having. So that text message might not be genuine.
3: And they can also spoof the phone number itself and make it look like the NHS number is calling you when it isn't.
0: Exactly. And criminals can also make a link appear to be genuine, but the moment you click on it, it will send you to a different website. So I would be very cautious in advising people to click on anything that someone has sent them. I think the best piece of advice we can give our listeners is that if you are in doubt, hang up and just type in manually the contact tracing web address, which is contact hyphen tracing.phe.gov.uk that is the surest way for people to make sure that they're on the right page. Rachel, thank you for looking into it. And and again, uh, the article is up at the Full Fact website. Uh, That's all from us. Thank you for listening to the Full Fact podcast. You can find previous episodes and any future episodes on Acast, iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you can think of. Be sure to subscribe and the latest episode will be ready on your device every Friday morning. And do give us a review because every little bit helps. Thanks for listening.